day, friends. It is a joy to worship with you here today. Uh, for those of you who are new or you're visiting with us, uh, just a special welcome to you. We're so glad you're here. My name is Dan Min, and I have the joy of serving as the pastor here at ACF. And um, my, my hope and my desire is that we leave here uh, feeling like we've We've done something meaningful. We've had a meaningful time here. And, uh, um, and, and, and meaning, not necessarily by way of the sermon or the music, meaning as in like we met with Jesus. Like we, we spent time encountering him through his word, through song. And uh, again, we don't, want, we don't want man-made production. That's not what we're about here at ACF. We're about divine intervention. We want God to intervene in every sector, every corner of our lives. And so uh, my, my desire, my hope is that you would leave here with that sort of in, in your heart. So glad you're here, friends. Um, uh, if you've been with us for the better part of this semester, you know that we've been going through a series called Essentials here, and we're spending some time unpacking some core doctrines of the Christian faith. We're looking at uh, the core belief systems that make up Christianity. Now, for those of us who identify as Christians, those of us who say, yeah, I'm part of that tradition. I'm part, I'm part of the, the, the Christian religion, the Christian faith, however you want to put it. Um, there are, believe it or not, there are certain belief systems that you hold uh, now, now, over the course of time, you may, you may have found that as you're walking with Christ, you know, some of the things that you believed about God may not be entirely true, or they may not be entirely grounded in Scripture. And so that's where we're doing this series of like, what, what do we believe as Christians? We've been examining these different ancient beliefs. And again, ancient, we say ancient not in the way of uh, outdated or irrelevant, but ancient in the form as in from the very start of Christianity, from its origin, the, the birth of our faith tradition till today over the course of 2,000 plus years, the church, the body of believers have held to a certain set of doctrinal beliefs, beliefs around the nature of God, the authority of scripture, our views on sin, our views on Christ. These are some of the things that we've been talking about and unpacking and much of these doctrines have not changed with time. These doctrines have stood the test of time. Now, there have been attempts throughout the course of human history to change some of those belief systems. And friends, I believe we're living in one of those seasons in present day where, um, I don't know if you've noticed, but the, the very things that Christians believe, followers of Jesus believe, are being brought into question. I don't know if this is striking you as new news, but uh, how many of you know it's, it's not really mainstream anymore to be Christian? It's not popular to be Christian. You guys are a Penn State student, so you guys know fully what I'm talking about, right? It's not, it's not mainstream. You know, it, it wasn't until a couple weeks ago DJ Khaled released a remix song of Use This Gospel. Eminem raps this track. It's like, now all of a sudden Christianity is cool. It's like Eminem's praying to God, you know, like I use my Bible like a rifle. And it's like, now, but, but beyond that, it's like, whoa, hang on, hang on. Christianity is like, it's outdated. It's, it's ancient in the way that we kind of think about ancient. It's outdated. It's irrelevant. And the reason 
reason why we're doing the series again is that we're trying to bring the doctrines, bring what we believe front and center and say, hey, we don't want to take our cues from culture. We don't want to take our cues from, from uh, you know, DJ Khaled. You know, we don't want to take our cues from any of these things. We want to take our cues from the living God, through the living word, through the living body of Christ as we journey together in this faith. Now, I fully realize, friends, one sermon series on Christian doctrines is not going to fix all of the misinformation or the misunderstanding around Christian doctrines. In fact, if I can confess something to you, I've had a love-hate relationship with this series. I love that we're doing this series. I love that we're preaching. I know it's not popular, the preacher saying he hates the series that he's preaching. I mean, like, just, just hear me out. I love that we're talking about this. I love that we're spending time talking about these belief systems. But, but as I've been preparing every week, I've been hating how I've been having to cut out so much of what we could be talking about on these individual doctrines. I feel like I'm not doing fair justice to each of these topics. Uh, these, these, are, these are huge, that the magnitude of each of these topics are massive. And so while this single sermon series cannot address all of what we believe about everything that has to do with our Christian faith, can I urge you, strongly encourage you to continue digging into these truths of doctrinal beliefs, d- digging into what is it that I believe as a follower? I, I, I call myself a Christian. I call myself a follower of Jesus. But what in the crap does that mean? What does that mean? Like, what do I believe? What do I actually believe? Keep digging into that. By the way, if I can just say this, and this is an important point. These are things that you have to believe. It's one thing to say, these are sets of beliefs that Christians believe, But there's got to come a point in your faith journey where you say, yes, Christians believe this, but I also believe this. I actually believe in the authority of Scripture. I actually believe that God is a jealous God, that there is no other God like him who is deserving of my worship and praise. I actually believe that sin is a real thing that mars every part of my being, every fabric of my soul is stained with sin. I I, I believe that to be true. There's got to come a point where you say, I believe these are essential to me. And not just essential in sort of a detached way of like, this is what my faith tradition believes, but this is what I believe. Because let me me tell you, to be honest, I really don't care to go through the series as as strictly an intellectual exercise. I, I don't want that to be the case. I don't want to teach a seminary course it's not what I'm here about. I don't want to, you know, like, I, that, I don't want this to be just an intellectual exercise. I don't think God will be deeply impressed if you can spout out doctrinal statements that are orthodox. I, I don't think God will be deeply impressed by that. I think God is far more concerned with not just theology, but applied theology. Theology that is then lived out and worked out in our everyday lives. Uh, the kind of theology that fills up every nook and cranny. And so uh, if, if we can just lean into that throughout the course, the remainder of the series, we only have a couple more weeks of the series to go through. And even this morning, if we can just lean into that, Lord, is this what I believe? I hear the preacher saying, this is what Christianity believes. This is what Christians believe. But like, do I really believe this for me? And that's the difference between studying theology and applying theology. 
Now, none of that has anything to do with what I want to talk about today, okay? That was all bonus material, okay? And, and so today I want to talk about the doctrine of Jesus, the doctrine of Jesus. Once again, how do you distill the centerpiece of an entire faith movement that has existed over 2,000 years into 20 minutes? You don't, okay? So um, I, as we think about Jesus, I want us to think about Jesus in three different ways, and these three ways of looking at him are all connected with three key moments in his life, his birth, his death, and his resurrection. At the base level, we would have to agree that these three moments in Jesus' life was absolutely critical to understanding who he was and what Jesus was about. And I don't want to just talk about the events themselves here this morning, because again, we want applied theology. I don't want to just say, here's the birth, here's where it happened, and let me give you an account of his death and his resurrection. I want to apply theology. And so how does, the question I want us to be able to answer by the end of our time is, how does Christ's birth, how does his death and his burial, how does his resurrection impact my life today? Remember, these are ancient beliefs for today. These aren't just doctrinal beliefs from long, long ago that, that, you know, like fairy tale traditions that have been passed on. These are beliefs that have been birthed from the very beginning of time that have an impact on this present moment. And so how does Jesus make an impact on my life today? And so I want to look at his birth for just a minute. As we think about the birth of Christ, I want us to think about Jesus, listen now, as number one, the incarnated one. He is the, Jesus is the incarnated one. The doctrine of incarnation is a very simple one, and yet it's one of the most profound mysteries of them all. The doctrine of incarnation says very simply that God became man. You want to, you want to boil down the, the doctrine of incarnation to a very simple statement? It is very simply, God became man. Now, this is one of the aspects that makes the Christian faith so unique the incarnation, because in no other faith tradition does God become like its creation. Like God might send a prophet, he might, say, he might work through a spokesperson of sorts, he might send heroes of that particular faith tradition, he might work in divine ways that only a few select enlightened folks can perceive, but it's only in the Christian faith tradition where God steps into humanity in the form of a human being to show the world just exactly what God is like. Let me show you a few places in scripture where we find this doctrine play out. John chapter 1 is probably the most classic verse that points to this particular doctrine of the incarnation. John chapter 1 verse 14. We're going to jump around just so you guys know. We're going to jump around. Jump around. We're going to jump around all over scripture. John chapter 1 verse 14 is the first place we see this. It says, and the word... Okay, this is referring to Jesus, capital W. Now, I, I could go on to, you know, why is Jesus referred to as the Word? There are Hebrew traditions of, of the Word of God being so holy and sacred that they were, uh, John was speaking to the Hebrews in, in light of the holiness of Jesus. This is, this is Jesus. He is the Word of God, the living Word of God. This is Jesus. John was also speaking to a Greek audience that was, the Word was, was this, uh, the logos, you know, the, the Greek word for Word was this, uh, um, uh, a way of living that exceeded beyond just the natural realm. And so there's this supernatural reality. To It's not just words that, are, that we speak and exchange. This is something that is sacred and holy and transcendent. And John says the word became flesh. Jesus, this, this God, 
became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came in the flesh, he dwelt among us, whereby we have now seen the glory of God because we have seen Jesus. Jesus is God incarnate. Colossians 1, we're not going to turn there, but, but also mentions how Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You want to know who God is? Look at Jesus. You want to know the nature of God? Look at Jesus. For Jesus came in the flesh. This is God incarnate dwelling among us. Galatians 4 says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Born of woman, again, of flesh. This is an actual human being. He was born of flesh, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. There is no question as to where Jesus came from. He came from the Father. Jesus himself stated that at several points in the Gospels. But not only did he come from the Father, in John chapter 10 and in John chapter 17, Jesus says, the Father and I are one. The word one there does not mean we tight. That's not what, that's not, that's not, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not, he's not saying like the Father and I, we're like buddies. He's saying the Father, the very, the very nature of who God is, is the nature of me. The nature of who I am is the very nature of God. The Father and I are one. Which, by the way, in John chapter 17, Jesus then says, I pray that my people... My disciples would be one like you and I are one. I'm just going to leave that for you to ponder on. That's another message for a different time and place. Philippians 2, Jesus says Jesus was God himself. The very nature of God was embodied in Christ. Now, how about an Old Testament passage? This is the prophet Isaiah prophesying about the coming Messiah. He says in Isaiah 9, for to us a child is born. Ah, the classic Christmas passage, right? For to us, a child's, but we all hear this during the Christmas time. By the way, I don't know if you know, we're only 14 weeks away from Christmas, but who's counting, right? I know, I'm excited, man. Christmas is my favorite time of the year, I'm not gonna lie. But, but Isaiah 9, he, he goes on, he says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. There are hundreds and hundreds of Old Testament prophecies just like this one, over 300 in fact, that speak of a God who steps into humanity in the flesh to dwell among us. But now the question is, how and why in the world is this significant for us today? What does it mean for us that Jesus is the incarnated one? Now, there's probably a thousand different ways to answer that question, but if I can just offer up this one takeaway for you here this morning. The incarnation shows us that God is closer to us than we think. God is closer to us than we think, and this is good news, friends. If the incarnation teaches us anything, it's that God is intimately familiar with our human struggles and our human needs. Why? Because he literally walked in our shoes. 
That's what the writer of Hebrews was talking about at the end of chapter 4, where it says we've got a high priest who is able to sympathize and empathize with our weaknesses and our struggles because he walked in it. He lived it. I mean, he, he, he wasn't a God who was sitting from afar, and he's like, I hope it works out for you guys. No, this was a God who stepped into humanity in flesh and bone and walked through our struggles, though he was without sin. And so he knows intimately he knows intimately, and because he knows, he invites us. He's, and, and, and the writer of Hebrews says, because of that, we can draw near to him, and we can come to him in our times of need and find grace and mercy. Praise God. God is closer to us than we think. And so in those moments when we are inclined to ask questions like, God, where are you? He is closer to you when, than you think. In those moments when you're asking, God, what are you doing in my life? I just, it's, it's hard to see you. It's hard to find you. Friend, hear me. He is closer to you than you think. In those moments when you say, you seem distant from me, God. You seem far from me. I'm trying to reach out to you, but it seems like I can't access you. Friend, hear me. He is closer to you than you think. Jesus, the incarnated one, means that he is actually right there in the midst of it all. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus promised us, Matthew 28, Great Commission, and I will be with you till the very end of the age. That's what the incarnation means for us. That we have a God who is closer to us than we could ever imagine or ever think. That's good news. I pray that you receive that here today. But get this, Jesus was not only the incarnated one, but he was also the slain one. He was the incarnated one, but he's also the slain one. He wasn't just born into this world as God incarnate, but he was also put to death as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. You know, it strikes me that it's impossible to talk about the Christian faith without talking about the death of Christ. It's all throughout Scripture. Every single gospel writer in the New Testament gives a very specific account of the death and burial of Jesus. Paul's writing is filled with references to the death of Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, for example, says this, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ, what? He died for the ungodly. And then skipping over to verse 8, it says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and when I came to you, brothers, listen, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, guys, my only message to you was about Jesus and him crucified. It was about Jesus and his crucifixion and his death and burial. That was Paul's message to the church of Corinth. It was all about the slain one. The prophet Isaiah didn't just have words for us only at Christmas time. He actually had words for us about the death of Jesus as well. In chapter 53, listen to how Jesus is described. Surely he, he is referring to Jesus. Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. 
Yet all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. I mean, look. We can go on and on and on all throughout Scripture, both in the Old Testament and the New, pointing to places that speak of the slain one, the one who has been crucified. Because again, you cannot talk about Christian, Christ, the, the, the Christian, Christianity as a whole, you cannot talk about the Christian faith without talking about the death of Jesus. Now, pause on that thought for just a brief moment. And I want you to just think about how odd this is. In what other context is the focus of conversation exclusively around the death of a person? Like, I mean, aside from like a funeral, right? Like where, where you're supposed to honor the deceased, which by the way, ironically, Christ's funeral, there was no honoring. What did the disciples do? They didn't give a eulogy. They didn't get up and be like, hey, let me, tell you, let me tell you what Jesus meant to me. Let me tell you how Jesus made it. They all scattered. They were like, peace, I'm out of here, man. I don't want to go. I don't want to end up like my Lord. Like, that, that's, that's not my cup of tea. I'm leaving. It was the anti-funeral, Christ's funeral, right? But, but like in funerals today, what do you do? You honor the deceased. You remember uh, the, 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 the loss of life. Like, I want you to think about this. When someone dies, it's not very common for you to go up to that person and constantly bring up the death of their loved one, right? I mean, like, you just don't do that with the living relatives and family members or friends. In fact, you might be inclined to do the very opposite, which is not to bring it up at all, right? Because, like, you know, it's just things get awkward there, and it just gets uncomfortable. So, you know, let's just not bring it up. In fact, you know, you might even be inclined to, to uh, you know, you know if, you're, if you're in someone's home, you, you might want to put stuff out of sight, that, that memorabilia that bring up, you know, emotions and, and feelings and memories of the loss, the lost ones, right? You, you, try to, you try to pack it away and so that it's not so front and center in your face. And yet, in the church, we have hung in our church buildings, sitting on top of steeples, a very visible reminder of the death of Jesus, the very torture mechanism that Jesus hung upon to die, the cross is prominently displayed all over church buildings all over the world. Every week, we remember the death of Jesus through the sacrament of Holy Communion. Right? It's like every time we gather, we seem to bring up the death of Jesus. If we did that in any other context, you know how weird that would be? Right? Like it, would be, it would be so weird to be like, hey, remember the loss? Remember that death? Remember? It's like and yet the church does this often. And that's because no other death means to us what the death of Jesus means to us. You see, the fact that Jesus is the slain one means that we are now set free. We are now set free. We are a free people. In other words, we're off the hook. We, we're, we're not even let off with a warning. We are completely off the hook. We are set free. Get this, friends. I want you to get this. We don't carry the responsibility of the payment for our sins because Jesus already paid it all. We don't carry that weight. 
We don't bear the weight of God's punishment for our sins because Jesus bore that punishment for us when he hung upon that cross on Calvary. We don't carry the crushing weight of God's wrath because the wrath of God was already fully poured out without holding anything back, fully poured out on Jesus on Golgotha. We don't need to worry about atoning for our sins ever. Because Jesus was the atoning sacrifice that took care of our sins forever. We don't have to worry about any of that. This is also good news, friends. We are now completely, wholly set free. We're free from the burden of carrying any and all of that. I wonder, I wonder if you wake up each morning with that reality sinking deep in your soul. I don't, I don't need to carry the burden of paying for something that I can never pay for anyway. I, I, I get to live this life without the burden of the crushing weight of God's wrath? Just, 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 just let that sink in for a moment. Scripture tells us in Romans that we, were, we, are, we deserved the wrath of God. You guys know how powerful God is, right? You guys know how like omniscient, omnipotent, like... The, the wrath that was deserved to us, he poured it out on Jesus. I wonder how differently our days would look if we woke up each morning thinking to ourselves, I'm free from all of that. I'm off the hook. Like, like when I get pulled over by the police because I might have a speeding problem, uh, you know, and they let me off the hook, I'm like... <laughs> praise Jesus, like, it's like, this is good, this is a great day, right, like, my wife is not happy that I got pulled over, you know, but I'm celebrating that guy, I got let off the hook, I mean, this is the ultimate divine pardon of your sin, forgiving of your debt, forget what, forget what Washington is doing, uh, forgiving, uh, the, you know, student loans, like, they praise God for that, but this is a debt that you could have never paid, that he had to pay for you, and because of that, we are now set free. We're set free. This is good news. What this means that Jesus is a slain one is that his worst day actually became our greatest gift. But don't worry, his worst day is about to turn around here because we also know that Jesus is the risen one. Jesus is the incarnated one. Jesus is a slain one. And he is also the risen one. Once again, all the gospel writers give an account of the resurrection of Christ, every single one of them, without fail. The apostle Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures. He is the slain one. Okay, we got that, Paul. But verse four, it goes on. He says that he was buried and that he was also raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Remember Peter, the guy who ended up denying Jesus three times? Peter didn't give any eulogy. He didn't give any memorable words at Christ's funeral. But he opens his first letter this way. First Peter, chapter 1, on this side of the resurrection... 
Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. We, we have a living hope. We don't have a dead hope. We don't have an antiquated hope. We don't have a, a, an expired hope. We have a living hope, a hope that is alive. Why? It's because it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I want to look at this, just this last passage here. The writer of Hebrews says it this way. I, I, I love what the writer of Hebrews says here because in a lot of ways, the author here sums up these three points we've been talking about all morning right here starting in chapter 1, verse 1. He says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's how he spoke to us. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Okay, there's that again, that John 1 passage. Uh, the word was with God, and the word was God, and the beginning was the word, right? Like he created the world. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's another echo to Colossians 1. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's the word who took on flesh. He is the incarnated one. After making purification for sins, now how did he do that? Through the death and burial. He is the slain one. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He is the risen one who is now seated at the right hand of God. By the way, I would strongly encourage you, if, you were, if you're looking for a book study or a Bible study of any kind, just study through the book of Hebrews. I mean, you want to talk about like the incarnated one, the, the slain one, the risen one, just jumping out of the pages of scripture. I mean, Hebrews has a way of, of painting a, a picture that is just so deeply profound. If I had the time, I'd unpack different uh, passages here this morning. But I, I, I want to answer this question. How does the fact that Jesus is the risen one affect my life today, your life today. Listen, friends, if Jesus is alive, it changes everything. It changes everything. That means in our lowest despair, okay, I want you to imagine, I want you to picture this. You've had moments like this. Some of you had moments like this. I, I realize not all of you, but, but, but some of you, I'm talking to some of you, you've had moments of Utter despair, low despair. I want you to know hope is attainable because Jesus is alive. In our darkest of times, light can be seen because Jesus is alive. In, in our times of worry and anxiety, Peace is made available to us because Jesus is alive. In our moments of grief and in our moments of sorrow, comfort is at hand because Jesus is alive. In our greatest temptations, no matter what kind of temptation you might face, and friends, you know what I'm talking about, deep in your soul, in our greatest temptations, Strength to overcome is possible because Jesus is alive. In our seasons of doubt, we can have great assurance in the faith because Jesus is alive.
You see, if Jesus wasn't alive, none of these things would be our reality. It wouldn't even be a possibility. In fact, Paul said it unequivocally. He said, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching's in vain. He's like, what are we doing this for? Your faith is in vain. It's all pointless. ACF, gathering in this way on a Sunday morning, it's all meaningless. If we're gathering here and Jesus isn't alive, who are we singing to? Who are we praising? Who are we adoring? Who are we exalting? Who are we turning our eyes towards? If Jesus isn't alive, if he is not seated at the right hand of the mighty one, who are we singing to? Who is this about? In what name have we gathered under? If Christ has not been raised, he goes on, he says, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. We are still living in bad news. If Jesus wasn't alive, we're left stuck in our lowest despair. We're stuck in deep darkness. We're bound by our worries and anxieties, overwhelmed by grief and sorrow and temptations overtake us, constantly doubting our faith. But that is not our reality. Because Jesus did rise from the dead, and because he rose from the dead, everything changes. Everything changes changes because Jesus is alive he is at work and if he's at work I can rest and know it's all going to be alright I love I, I listened to a, a, an interview with Tim Keller just this, this past weekend just caught a small clip and he said I get I get this question a lot from 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 young uh, Christians of just trying to figure out life like man I'm going through this hard time I can't figure it out like why am I going through this like what is there is there, is, there, is there any light at the end of the tunnel? He's like, look, if the resurrection didn't happen, I'd say, no, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. He says, if the resurrection actually did happen, if Jesus is alive, the moral of the story, it's all going to be okay. It sounds oversimplistic. It almost sounds naive, but as people of faith, we are people of resurrection power. We're people who believe in the resurrection, and so if Jesus did rise from the dead, and if he is at work today in your life and in my life, do we not have the space to say, okay, Lord, you're working things out, and it's going to all be okay. Some of you need to take a big sigh of relief in this season of your life because you're trying to hold it together. Can I remind you what, what Scripture tells us in Colossians, that in him all things were created and through him all things hold together. Jesus is the one who is holding all things together so you don't have to. He's able to hold things all together so that you don't have to because he's alive. If he was dead, who's holding my life together? Me? I can't even hold my, my, my little schedule, my one-day week schedule together. I can't hold my... But Jesus is like, no, no, you don't have to. Because I'm alive, leave it to me. I got it. I, got, I can hold all things together for you. That's good news, friends. That's gospel truth right there. Would you receive that here today? I want to invite the worship team forward. I want to close out the message the same way I started. 
You know, we can talk about doctrines all we want. We can talk about here's what Christians believe, here's what the Christian, Christianity, Christian faith believes, and all these things. We can acknowledge all these things about Jesus. Yes, he's the incarnated one. Yes, he's the slain one. Yes, you know, he's the risen one. We see this all throughout scripture. Yes, yes, yes. But it all boils down to this one question. Do you believe this to be true? Do I believe this to be true? Do I really believe that he is closer to me than I think? Do I really believe that I live as a free person, that, that I'm let off the hook, that I'm, I, I don't carry the weight of the punishment of sin? Like, I don't, like Again, I, you may cognitively understand it, but do you understand it at the base levels of who you are? Do you know this to be true at your soul level? Do you believe that he is alive? And because he's alive, that means everything is different. Everything is so different. I mean, can, can, you, can you imagine just for a minute, like, the, the, the disciples, the first time that it dawned on them that, holy crap, Jesus is actually alive. Can you imagine the, the, the hundreds and hundreds of people that Jesus came in contact with post-resurrection? He's like, Jesus, is that, is that you? Like, you're, you're alive. That means that everything that you said when you were alive is true. We can hang on that. We can bank on that. We can build our lives on that, that you are the Messiah, that you are my Lord, that you do actually carry the weight of my sin, that you will actually be with me till the very end of the age, that you're not just full of it. Right? Like, if he, if he died and didn't rise from the dead, he would be the biggest BS artist in the, on, the, on the globe of the planet. Like, no, 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 no. This is the God of the universe. He's a God of his word. So he, because of the resurrection, we can take him at his word. He's alive. Do you believe that to be true? Can I just say this? And then we're going to close out with this song. If you're here today, and you're not quite at that point where you say, Dan, I don't know that I believe. I like what you're saying. I want to believe, but I'm not sure that I'm, I'm not all the way there. Man, I'm just, I'm being honest. I'm not all the way there. That's okay. One thing you need to know about God, we, we could have talked about this on our first week when we talked about the doctrine of God, but here's, here it is. God is infinitely patient. He is so patient. And so if you're there and you're like, man, I'm just not, I'm not there. That's okay. That's okay. You know, you know the prodigal son story, the father was, he, he's just waiting there. Waiting there, looking out the window, seeing if you're any closer. He'll wait for you. He's, he's patient. He's not going to rush you into believing anything that you don't, you're not ready to believe. That's, that's, that's good news. That's, he, that's the grace of God being extended to you, friends. But if you're here today and you say, yep, that's me. I believe it. I believe that he's the incarnated one. I believe that he carried everything that was deserved unto me. I, I believe that he carried that for me. And I believe that he's alive today. I believe that he's working in my life. I might not always see it so clearly, but I believe this to be true. There is only one response, friends. It's worship. It's gratitude. It's saying, oh God, 
what more is there to say but thank you you know what I mean like thank you for coming to us in the flesh thank you for taking what was deserved unto me and you voluntarily stepped in as tribute and you took it on yourself oh thank you thank you that you didn't stay in the grave in the tomb but that you rose from the dead and thank you that you're at work in my life right now even in this moment thank you church family can we just stand to our feet as an act of gratitude as an act of worship and just in your own hearts would you just offer up a word of thanks I don't, need to, I don't need to teach you how to say thank you. Most of you, I'm, I'm believing that you were brought up with manners and etiquette, you know, and so I know you know how to say thank you. Would you just turn that gratitude towards your Heavenly Father, towards Jesus today, and just acknowledge that He didn't have to do any of this? chose to because he wanted to and he wanted to because just how much he loves us oh holy spirit of god i pray that you would flood our hearts this morning with the